Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm looking forward to studying the Bible with you this morning. So before we do that, why don't we just say a prayer together before we get started? So will you bow your heads with me for a prayer? Dear God, thank you that we can trust you. Like we sang about this morning in that song, Lord. Thank you that we can trust you in every area of life, God. In the sunny, happy, wonderful blessings that you pour out on us, God. We can praise you and thank you. And God, also in the darker valleys where we hurt and we question your goodness, Lord. We can also hold tightly to you and learn to trust you there as well. And this morning, God, as we study your word, we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us to understand it clearly. And also, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply it to our lives. Show us new ways, Lord, that we can know you and trust you and walk in faith in the life that you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friend Mike loves to ride his bicycle. And several years ago, he was riding his bicycle down Glendora Mountain Road when he lost control during a turn and he went off the side of the mountain. It's estimated that he fell about 300 to 350 feet before he finally came to a stop. And when he did, he had broken his back in 19 different places and punctured one of his lungs with one of his ribs. Amazingly, his bicycle had fallen just a few feet away from him and stopped right where he stopped. Um, He said even though it was just a few feet away from him, though, he was in so much pain that it took him probably half an hour just to crawl over to his bicycle, which again, amazingly, still had his cell phone attached to it, which again, amazingly, had some reception, enough to make a call. And so he called his mom. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. He figured he was going to die, and he wanted to talk to his mom one more time. He told her that he loved her. He hung up the phone, and he called 911. They sent a rescue helicopter, but they couldn't locate him. They had no clue where he was off the side of the mountain, and he's a tiny speck among the brush. Eventually, though, he saw the helicopter circling right above him, and he said, you're right above me, but they still could not spot him. So the operator suggested, why don't you try to get their attention with your cell phone? And so that's what he did. He extended his arm out like this, and managed to catch the sunlight and shine it into the eyes of the pilot, who was then able to locate him and rescue him before he died. The first time that I saw Mike after his accident, we sat across from each other at a coffee shop. And with this beaming smile, he said to me, I'm alive. I'm supposed to be dead, but I'm alive. And I just want to help people. And that's what we were talking about. As we sat there at this coffee shop, we were brainstorming ideas for evangelism and service. And he was telling me how he was training at the time to become a firefighter, which eventually he did. And I share this, of course, because we also are alive. We have been made alive in Christ. We also were doomed and headed for death spiritually. 
and we were rescued. We were saved. Jesus brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And just like my friend Mike was eager and excited to to live this new lease on life that he'd been given to the fullest, so you and I are excited and eager to live our new life in Christ to its absolute fullest capacity. And one of the ways the Bible tells us that we can do that is by letting the peace of Christ, it says, rule in our hearts. You see, in our old, doomed life, we lacked peace with God and with each other. In fact, the Bible says that God was our enemy. That on one level, we hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. And it says that we were distanced from each other as well. We did not trust our fellow man because we know what we are capable of in our hearts. How much we can hurt each other. And so any alliances we did make, friendships and people we did draw close to, we made sure that they were as similar to us as possible. So that the chance that they would hurt us like we could hurt others would be reduced as much as possible. But then... We were rescued. We were saved and given a brand new life, a life that the Bible describes as a life of peace. And now he calls us to live out this new life by drawing close to God, who we have peace with, and also by drawing close to one another, especially in the family of God, the people who have been given this life of peace and called to unity and harmony and love. We're going to start in uh, Colossians chapter 3 this morning for our passage. Colossians chapter 3, and you can look it up in your own Bible. We'll also put the verse on the screen here. And in Colossians chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 15. And as we read here in verse 15, see if you can hear for yourself how one way we can live this new life in Christ is by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. It says this, starting in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So Paul is writing about how to live our new life in Christ. In fact, in the New Living Translation, the heading on chapter 3 says, Living the New Life. And your Bible, if you look, probably says something similar to that. And what does he say here in verse 15? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why? Because he says, as members of one body, you were called to peace. In other words, you have peace. You have been saved to a life of peace with one another. And so, if you want to live that new life, here's one way you can do it. Let the peace that you have in Christ rule in your heart. In other words, do not give in to that temptation of your dead, doomed, sinful, former way of life that you were rescued to. To be enemies with people who are different from you. 
to distrust and not draw near to people who don't share your political beliefs or your, who are from a different generation in the family of God. Or people who are in the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ who he's writing to, let me remind you, who don't agree with you 100% on your theology. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I grew up in the church, and one thing that stood out to me, even as a child who had no clue really what was going on as I grew up in the church, was that the church was unique for a few reasons. And one of those reasons was that when I came to church, I don't know, from the age of 10 probably to 17, older men who were older than me, they would come to me and talk to me at church. They would greet me on the patio and they would suffer my awkward self in conversation. They would listen to me explain the video games I played and the, the, the sports I was interested in and the things, the music that I listened to. And with genuine warmth, they would smile and have conversations with me. And it stood out to me. It, it was, in hindsight, a vivid picture of God's love being extended to me through these older men who wanted me to know that I was accepted and wanted and welcomed in the family of God. And if you see me outside on the patio from time to time, chatting with junior high boys, high school boys, college boys, part of the reason is, yes, I do have the peace and love of God in my heart. But part of the reason is I want to carry on the legacy. I want to pass on that blessing that made God's love so real to me when I was a kid growing up in church, at youth groups and Sunday mornings, feeling awkward and out of place, and do I really belong here? And the answer was yes. You're loved and wanted and welcome. And I hope this morning, as we ponder this passage about living the new life, and we read about letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, that maybe some of us will reconsider the hatred in our hearts that we bear towards those who do not agree with us on every issue of theology, who are nonetheless our brothers and sisters in Christ. That perhaps this morning as we think about the implications of letting the peace of Christ rule and direct our lives, that we would dare to reconsider showing warmth and kindness towards fellow believers who don't vote the way we vote, but who nonetheless are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we might even consider this morning realizing that believers of different generations than us who don't share our hobbies or our interests and don't use our slang actually exist. And they are worthy of us acknowledging that they exist and getting to know them and extending the love of Christ and experiencing the harmony and closeness and togetherness that Jesus died and rose from the grave for us to experience starting now and forever, which is a helpful reminder. You might not think those people are very interesting to you, 
they're younger, they're older, they disagree with you, they vote the wrong way, but you're going to be with them forever. They're your family. And so you might as well not wait to experience the heavenly life that we're headed for and start experiencing the new life of peace and closeness and harmony, not just with the people who are almost exactly like you so you don't get hurt, but because you're already loved and accepted in Christ, even to those who are a bit riskier to get to know and to open your heart to and to draw near to because that's what it means to be alive. And we get better and better at that, of course, the more we meditate on the gospel, the more we let the, the message of Jesus dwell richly in our hearts, which is actually another way that the Bible tells us that we can live our new life. It's just by letting the good news of Jesus soak in us. Which is a challenge, since for most of us, we would prefer to let the, the message of Christ dwell in us casually. It's more convenient to sort of here and there associate and think about the gospel. To, you know, read about Jesus just in preparation of a meeting where you have to teach about Jesus. But not every day on your own. To remember the gospel from time to time, but not meditate on it, on the life and person and work of Jesus Christ. Because, well, that takes a bit of discipline and a bit of hard work. And so I'm glad this morning that we're about to see the reminder in Scripture to let the good news of Jesus, the message of Christ, dwell in us richly. Let's look at the very next verse. So that would be verse 16. And let's, as I read here, see if you can in hear for yourself as you read it, that another way we can live this new life is by letting the message of Christ dwell in us richly. It says this in verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's still talking about living the new life, and he says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. And one of the reasons that's a challenge one of the reasons we'd rather continue just letting it dwell in us from time to time is because we've heard it before. And when we think about meditating on the gospel, it kind of sounds like meditating on old news. It might be good news, but it's old news. And yet, may I just challenge you this morning to look again at the gospel, to read the gospels afresh, Consider the cross and what Jesus has done for you. Because what we find when we meditate on the good news of Jesus, when we attempt to let the gospel dwell in us deeply, is that it's one of those unique areas of life where the more you look into it and think about it and meditate on it, 
the more you realize that you will never exhaust the mystery and the wonder of the gospel. The more you begin to realize that it makes sense when the Bible teaches that we will spend all of eternity worshiping God for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as you do that, as you begin to think about Jesus and what he's done, what you'll find is it will bubble out of you. Just like it says here, you will begin to teach and admonish one another. Which is sort of just what happens when you're filling yourself with something, isn't it? Have you ever been fascinated with something and learning about it? You tend to want to talk about it and tell other people what you're learning and what you're seeing. And it's no different with Jesus. When you meditate on his grace and mercy, you kind of want to explain it to people and talk about it and think and, and have conversations about it. And whether your spiritual gift is the gift of teaching or not, you end up teaching others about Jesus in the family of God, and the message of Christ begins to dwell more deeply in them and in you as they teach you as well. My uh, life group was meeting back here in this room in a circle probably, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, and I'm sorry all my examples are about me. That's just what pops into my head, okay? But we're sitting back there in a circle, and we were reading and studying the book of Hebrews in this season, and we came to a, a passage in the 13th chapter that we read, and I was I was, part of me was embarrassed to ask this question because I'd already been to seminary, but it, it said something like, do good, do good, and this is your sacrifice to God. And I just said, what does that mean? Like, how is me doing good a sacrifice? Like, the sacrifices, they, they would take animals and, and they would be sacrificed or they would bring something of value to God in the Old Testament. Like, what does that have to do with me doing good? And I even said, I've heard pastors say this a lot, and I just, I still don't know what it means. And someone in the group, um, he said, well, you're right. We don't bring sacrifices like animals or things of value to the Lord anymore. And that's the point the author is making to the Hebrew Christians who he's writing to who have Jewish background. But instead, he said, you get to bring something of value to the Lord, and that is yourself. Those animals, they were valuable, precious things that they gave up as an act of worship and trust in the Lord. And while you don't do that, he said, you do get to lay down your life for him and say, Lord, I will give you everything. I will do what you want me to do. I will serve and obey you and live for you. And he says, as you do that, as you give up or sacrifice your life for him, he said, that is your spiritual sacrifice to God. And it clicked. I hope I, I, hope I explained it as well as he did. Because it clicked for me. I was like, oh, that makes sense. I wasted my money on seminary. <laughs> and it was very eye-opening. And, and it's something that I just continued. I started just thinking about and meditating on. Because it was beautiful. And it made sense to me for the first time in years. And that's kind of what happens. When you gather with other Christians who are letting the gospel soak in their hearts and who are seeking to understand it and apply it and live it out, they end up telling you about it. They end up helping you understand what it means and what it looks like in your life. And you do the same thing for them. And, and as we both do it for each other, 
the message begins to dwell even more deeply within us, doesn't it? That's why he starts by saying, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he seems to imply that you're going to end up teaching and admonishing each other. And then what's the very next thing he says? He says, you're going to sing about it too. Have you ever noticed that? That when you're in awe of God, when you're meditating on his grace and truth, at times it's so overwhelming that you want to just sing to him. You want to just burst into song and maybe in your prayer times or something, you've even done a little dance because you're just so in love with him. And that's totally normal. In fact, when I was studying this passage, I was reminded of a friend who, when he was in love in the early stages of a romantic relationship, I would catch him sometimes singing random love songs when he thought no one was listening, but someone was listening. And I, I remember the one song that sticks with me. Oh, I just thought of another one. But the one that I remember him singing, at one time when he thought no one was listening, I heard him singing this Alicia Keys song. She says something like, Some people want it all. Some don't want nothing at all. But I don't want nothing. If it ain't you, you didn't know I could sing. And I'm going to keep singing, Eddie, until you let me on the worship team. <laughs> so expect my next message. Um, but but that's, that's, that's so normal. When you're in awe of someone or something, to want to just burst out into song. And when we do that, when we sing to each other, in the presence of each other, with each other, the message of Christ dwells even more richly in our hearts. I was on a missions trip with this church maybe five or more years ago in Louisiana. And we were in a, a, a random backyard in Louisiana ske- uh, scooping up um, leaves into bags, right? Typical missions trip behavior, right? There's this whole group of us with matching t-shirts just scooping up leaves into bags. And at the time, I was... Um, I was kind of in a spiritually dry season. I'm sure you've never been in a season of life like that. But I was saying my prayers. I was doing my Bible studies consistently. I was going to church. I was on a missions trip. And you'd think if I'm doing all of that, that I'd feel real close to the Lord, real grateful and all that. But I didn't. I didn't feel anything. I felt cold in my heart. And here we are scooping up leaves into bags and, and over just the crunching sound of leaves and bags being rustled. One of the guys there on the trip with us, he just starts um, belting out this acapella worship song. And I'm sure you want me to sing it, but I'll read you the words. This is, this is the acapella worship song that he starts singing over the sound of crushing leaves and rustling trash bags. He says, are you hurting and broken within, <clears throat> overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. 
Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. And for some reason, as I just am half-heartedly listening to my friend sing this song, it pierced my heart. I just started thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, it's true. Why would I wait? I, I can be forgiven right now. I can run into God's arms and know that I'm loved and close to him. I don't have to wait. And somehow I just did. Somehow I was like woken up from this spiritual slumber and I had this like almost revival in my heart that, that lasted. And I just think it's a beautiful example of, of what happens as we come together as the body of Christ and meditate on Jesus until we sing about Jesus and we hear the songs and it helps us to feel the thought in a way that music does. And the word of God begins to go deeper and deeper in our hearts. As we join together to sing in our life groups before the meeting starts, as we text each other, hey, have you heard this song, this worship song? Oh, this is a good one, check it out. And as we sing in our hearts, in our rooms, in our prayer times, the message of Christ goes even deeper and deeper and deeper, which is, of course, our fuel for loving each other. Nothing sounds more basic than loving each other. You go to church, and what do they tell you? Love each other. And yet, when it comes to this topic of our new life, it's good to be reminded to love each other, because we know all too well that our old life lacked Jesus type of love. That if you told us before we were saved, you're going to be part of a religious community or family. Our approach to that group would have been, okay, but what am I going to get out of it? What is this church going to do for me? What's in it for me? But then we met the Lord. We heard the story of a God who, while we were his enemies, laid down his life for us and rose from the dead so that we could be with him forever. And now we approach our spiritual family. And in this new and glorious life, we say, God, how can I love this group of people? How can I bless and intercede for this family that you've given me. Because no matter how much I serve and love and lay down my, my life for them, which doesn't mean becoming a doormat or something like that. That's not loving. But I think you know what I mean. I'll never love them, Lord, to the extent, to the depth that you loved me while I was still your enemy. And so I'm glad that, that Paul doesn't just tell us to let peace rule in our hearts or the gospel, but he says, love each other if you want to live the new amazing life that God has given you in Christ. Let's look at that passage now. 
And for this one, we'll back up to verse 12. And as I read here in verse 12, see if you can hear how our new life is a life where we get to love each other. He says this, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievances against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So he says a lot of things, but he ends with put on love over all of these, which binds them together. And if you read a commentary, it'll tell you that one way that love binds together all of these things like compassion, kindness, humility, is that all of those could be expressions of love. Meaning that when you love someone from your heart, you tend to treat them with gentleness. You tend to enjoy being kind to them. And when they wrong you, it's not like it doesn't hurt, but you're willing to forgive them. Why? Because you love them. That's why. And so he wraps it all up by saying, love each other. And I, I imagine that to one extent or another, you've experienced God's love through the family of Jesus, through the people in your life group or your church one way or another. Of course, we've also probably been hurt by one another a lot because that's the risk that you take when you draw close to each other. But we know that the greatest blessing of a spiritual family is that we get to be a blessing to them like Jesus is to us. That the greatest joy of being in a saved community is that we get to express the forgiveness and gentleness and kindness of God to one another that God has shown to us, which makes the kindness and gentleness and forgiveness of God all the more vivid and real in our hearts, which just continues the cycle of love. That's what it means to be saved, to be rescued from sin. It's to live a life of harmonious, glorious friendship and love with the family of God forever. On uh, the first time my family got COVID, we, you know, it was pretty bad the first time. It got me bad, the worst sickness I had. My father was, actually, he, his wasn't severe, but for some reason it hit my mom the hardest. She was very sick. In fact, on the night that we, or the day, I guess, oh yeah, the night that we came home from urgent care with her, she passed out, collapsed, and still doesn't remember it. I carried her to the couch and laid her down. And that evening, this is not medical advice, okay? I'm gonna avoid eye contact with the doctors in the room. But that evening, while I had my phone there ready to dial 911, uh, I sat on one side of her on a couch, my father on the other, and every 20 minutes, I would just set an alarm on my phone. Every 20 minutes, I'd wake her up. I would test her blood oxygen level, which was very low. And then I would force her to take five of the deepest breaths she could take. You might say, why five? 
Because for her to take five of her deepest breaths was like running a marathon. And she just looked pathetic. And I did that. We did that for hours and hours into the night, just hoping and praying that my mother would pull through. This all happened um, right around Thanksgiving time. And so as you can imagine, our Thanksgiving plans just burned up immediately. My mom had prepared, like always, to cook a huge feast. And we had family coming from, you know, different directions on the globe to meet at different places and the whole thing. And it's all just gone. You're sick. No one can see you. No one can come over. And there's no food. Which didn't really matter because we couldn't eat. On Thanksgiving Day, I didn't even get a knock on the door. Just a message on my phone. And I opened the front door, and out on the patio of the house was a full Thanksgiving dinner in boxes. I brought it in, and we unpacked it, and it literally, for the three of us, covered the entire table. There was not an inch to spare. Turkey dinner, gravy, what's the, I can't remember the name of the corn, cream corn, and shrimp. It's not even on the list. And as I sat there, when my father said the Thanksgiving prayer before we ate, I managed not to cry. But I shook, and hot tears rolled down my face as I just felt so loved and so seen at a time when I just felt so invisible. How could anyone know what we're going through? But someone knew. Because someone in our church family who did not have a lot of extra to give. Ask the church, is there anyone in the church who we could cook a meal for this Thanksgiving to bless? And they said, well, Luke and his family are sick. And I got to experience the warmth and love of Christ as I watched my mother eat something besides a quarter of a banana for the first time since she'd fallen sick. But the love that I felt, that I'll never forget that evening or afternoon, pales in comparison to the love that inspired that love. It was the love of Jesus that filled their hearts, that they wanted to express to their spiritual family because they knew that that is the greatest blessing of belonging to the church, is to love and serve them and know the blessing of living like Christ, of living the new life, as the NLT puts it at the beginning of chapter 3. And so this morning, may God's word remind us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. May the word of God remind us to let the message of Jesus dwell in us deeply, not just casually from time to time. And may we be reminded in a fresh way this morning that to live the heavenly, new, saved life is to love each other more and more like God loves us. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for giving us grace and truth. Because we need both, Lord. We not only need to be given a new life, but we need your directions to live that new life, God. We need your reminders 
in your help. That though painful to learn how to let go of our old life, our old habits, God, it's a blessing. They are a curse. They led us on a path to death. But you have put us on a new path, God, a path of life, a path that is a path that is close to you, our greatest joy of all, friendship, harmony, and love with you, and a life that manifests itself in the friendship, harmony, and unity of the people and the family of God as expressed in the local church. And so, God, this morning, we ask that your grace and truth would touch our hearts in a deep way as we think about your word, but also as we stand even now to belt out our hearts to you, Lord, and be reminded of who you are and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.